What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Welcome to Actionable Intelligence. I'm Eric Greitens. I'm honored to be with you tonight. And as you know, this is the show that respects your intelligence. And we bring you the stories that the mainstream media is often not willing to cover. Now, big tech censors, as you know, have really declared war on free speech, or at least speech from conservatives and many of those who supported President Trump. A lot of people have asked what they can do to fight back against the overreach of big tech. Well, my next guest knows at least part of the answer. Jeff Brain is the founder of CloutHub. It's an alternative social media platform that's seen tremendous growth over the last several months. He joins us now. Jeff, thank you so much for, for being with us. Uh, if you could, please, Governor, it's Jeff, good to be with you. Yeah, absolutely. Just start, please, by, by telling our viewers what is Clout Hub and, and how are you all faring amidst all of the censorship from big tech? Sure, thank you. Uh, well, Clout Hub is very different than anything you'll see on the internet these days. Uh, Clout Hub is the first ever social media platform created from the ground up for the people to discuss the civic, social, and political issues they care about. What we do is we bring people together and give them tools where they can connect, collaborate, you know, discuss issues, organize through groups, share information, and actually influence the issues they care about. There are many challenges facing our country and our mm -hmm. society today, and we feel the existing social media platforms, which really are intrusive, you know, divisive, and unhealthy, and focus on things that really don't matter, are no longer meeting the needs we need a platform where people can, you know, are empowered actually to address the issues, not silence, where they're silencing people, where we're practicing citizenship and, and encouraging people to get involved and, and in their communities and in their events that are happening in our country. Yeah, and Jeff, as I understand it, you and your team have also made a, a real commitment not only to allowing people from across the political spectrum to, to come together and to, to learn from each other, but you've also made a, a real commitment to protecting people's privacy. Talk, if you would, about how you do that um, amidst you know, all of this technology, how you make sure that you really protect people's privacy as they're out there interacting and, and, and working and collaborating with others on your site. Yeah, great point. So first, you're absolutely correct. We are not just a conservative platform, although it is a place where conservatives can come and feel free mm -hmm. to speak and not feel like they have to uh, measure what they say for fear of being silenced or shadow banned. Everybody's sure. welcome, both the right and the left. Uh, so free speech. The second issue, of course, that you mentioned is privacy. And I've always believed that just because we join a social media platform, 
we don't give up our right to privacy. And so on CloudHub, when you join, we're gonna ask for three things. We're gonna ask for your name, an email address, and a phone number so we can send you a two, you know, verification code and, mm -hmm. and verify you're a real person, but we'll never use that phone number for anything. But that's it. Beyond that, we don't get into your phone. We don't get into your SIM card. We're not looking what apps you're using. We don't track you to the mall to see what you're looking at. We don't even take the IP address you came in off of. And any information beyond those three things that I mentioned, it's completely up to you, whether you give them or not. You might give us your city so that we can you know, show you things related to your community, but it's not required. And uh, we just think that that's as equally as important to many people as speech, because we know on the major platforms, you right. know, while they started out with the best of intentions, they're, they're actually you know, lost their way uh, and they're invading our privacy and selling our data. We, we don't share your data. We don't sell your data, and we don't have your data in the first place. Now, I know that that, uh, that privacy is, is a big concern for, for a lot of people. Sounds like you guys are addressing that uh, very thoroughly. I also know that for, for a lot of entrepreneurs, um, they want to know how they can not only adopt alternative platforms, but they're also concerned about reliable hosting services, right, so that they don't get, get booted by, by service providers. Uh, what do you make of this, and what kind of advice would you, would you give them? Well, first, I would tell them to be proactive. Um, and by that, I mean it's better that you contact these companies that you have to work with and explain who you are before somebody else tries to convince them you're something else. Mm -hmm. Now, CloudHub was never meant to be an alternative to Twitter. We're not meant to be a conservative Twitter. We're open to everybody, and we're a much right. more comprehensive platform. We'll have a, a civic hub. We'll have an education hub, an entertainment hub, a faith hub, a business hub, you know, health hub. So we're really connecting people to the aspects of their life, you know, through the digital society. Mm -hmm. So we're much more than just, you know, like Parler was viewed as an alternative to Twitter for conservatives, but we're much bigger than that. So number one, you got to get to these service providers, Apple, Android, and AWS, and others. You know, there's other cloud services, mm -hmm. and and. It's best they hear from you what you are, and then yeah. also what's your moderation. The biggest challenge on social media is moderation. Um, you know, I, even for conservatives, I find most conservatives don't want to be engaged in hate or violence, and, and they're not looking for that. What they really want is the ability to speak their mind mm -hmm. and on issues, and CloudHub gives them that. But we do not permit, you know, hate. We do not permit violence to be... Sure. Uh, promoted on CloudHub, and most everybody agrees on that. So there's no, you know, we're not, I guess what I'd, I'd say is we're not facing some of the challenges some of the other platforms have, because right from the start, we implemented an uh, artificial intelligence system that we created on our platform that keeps it, the interaction uh, positive, civil. There's no porn allowed on our platform. Every image, every video is viewed, and if there's any kind of porn in it or, or any inappropriate behavior, uh, it catches it, and it does, they get a pop-up that says this is not appropriate for CloudHub. If they use, you know, certain derogatory racial slurs, uh, such as the N-word, uh, and they're typing it, they would get a pop-up that says this is not appropriate for mm -hmm. CloudHub. We really feel that we are the modern-day, you know, town hall, and uh, you know, we want it to be civil. And and you know, really, you know, country is so divided. What we need to do is start to bring people back together and start to find common ground and start to solve problems. And that's that's really what CloudHub's about. And some people, you know, because we're getting, with Parla down, we're getting a lot of people coming over. Um, you know, some on the left, they're getting nervous and they're starting to say, well, it's just another place for, you know, hate or this or that. But that's not the truth. 
The truth is we, we monitor very heavily. Uh, we've, we've taken on almost 2 million people in six days. Uh, so you can imagine we're a little bit overwhelmed um, and stuff, some stuff might be getting through, but when we find it, we'll address it. And it is a, you know, a place that is a very positive yeah. place. Now, Jeff, let me, let me ask you, just kind of put your, your CEO hat on for a second. And if you could kind of give us an analysis of the, the marketplace, do you think that these other big tech platforms, do you think that their crackdown on conservatives is gonna, how is that gonna hurt their brands? And, and how is it, and how do you predict that it might cost them from a business standpoint? I think it most definitely will cost them. We're seeing that already with Twitter. Yeah. I think that uh, they have misjudged uh, the reaction they're going to get. There's a short-term reaction and a long-term reaction. And I think in the long term, they've lost, uh, you know, when you look at what reasons Mark Zuckerberg or, or Jack Dorsey had to start their platforms, I'm sure it had nothing to do with what they're involved with now. You know, it was all about creating community, uh, and uh, they're a long way from that. And I think they need to get back to their roots. I think all social media needs to get back to their roots. Uh, anyone who's seen the Social Dilemma movie also knows that social media is very uh, harmful, actually, to individuals and to society. And, uh, you know, that's why I think you're starting to see a second generation of social media platforms coming out to solve those problems of speech, privacy. We haven't talked about health, but yeah. most social media is very unhealthy. And uh, CloudHub is actually designed by a consultant in neuroscience uh, to be healthy. And Jeff, you know, from your perspective, uh, again, being on the inside, putting on your, your, your business hat, you're obviously familiar uh, with the law surrounding social media. Do you think the conservatives yeah. have any legal standing right now to challenge a lot of these crackdowns from big tech where they have, you know, so many people, not just the president, which has been the highest profile case, but so many people who have been kicked off of these platforms. What, what, do, you, uh, what do you make of their, their ability to actually challenge this in, in court, given the state of the current law? Yeah, well, the current law is Section 230, mm -hmm. the Decency Act. And the Decency Act was uh, passed in 1996 when we had bulletin boards way back then. It's changed yeah. a lot since then. And uh, it basically distinguish between a publisher, which is a magazine that decides what goes in their magazine. So if I was a publisher of a magazine, I'm deciding what articles get included in there. And if I was to include an article that was slandering you, you could sue me for slander, mm -hmm. right? But on a platform that I'm just creating the infrastructure and the users are putting their own thoughts there, the idea behind this Decency Act was I'm not responsible for what they say, all right? But it also requires that I treat everybody equally. Right. And I think the opportunity for people to challenge the existing platforms is on that, right? Uh, if they are in fact effectively deciding what's going on their platform and what's not, then aren't they no longer a, a platform, they're more a publisher. And I think that's where their vulnerability is. I think that Section 230 should be modified because right now it simply says, you know, these platforms are, are not pub not publishers and will be exempt from liability. And what it should say is, provided they don't act like publishers, right. they're protected from. It's a very simple change. We could do it like that with you know, but I don't know that that'll happen or not. Yeah, good, cool. And and Jeff, just just in the last twenty seconds that we that we have left, uh, very quickly, uh, your predictions for twenty twenty one, not just around Cloud Hub, but around the social media landscape. Well, I think you'll continue to see people move away from the bigger platforms. I think they're tired of being, uh, having their privacy invaded. I think they're tired of 
being manipulated. I, I think they're tired of being told what they can talk about or not talk about uh, and, and the manipulation of the search results and such. I think there'll be a continuing move towards smaller alternative platforms and you'll see us continue to grow. Awesome. Well, Jeff, thank you so much uh, for joining us. And folks, again, that's Jeff Brain, CEO and founder of Clout Hub. You can check it out online. And we'll be right back after the break with a good friend of mine, Missouri's former director of public safety, Drew Juden. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Well, welcome back to Actionable Intelligence. I'm Eric Reitens. Now we're going to bring in a great guest, a good friend of mine. He's Drew Juden. He's a career public servant, and he served in public safety for decades. When I was the governor of Missouri, Drew served as the director of the State Department of Public Safety. He did great work there to support our first responders and keep the people of Missouri safe through a number of different public safety emergencies. And I'm proud to say that when we worked together in Missouri, together we were able to defeat Antifa. We did it with a very straightforward approach. We protected every citizen's constitutional rights to freedom of speech. We protected their rights to freedom of assembly. And we were also clear that throwing a brick through a window is not free speech and that anyone who assaulted a law enforcement officer was going to be arrested. Drew Juden is a firefighter, he's a police officer, he is a tactical and operational leader. Drew, it's great to see you. Thanks so much for joining us. Governor, it's great to see you as always. And let me also say congrats on the beard. It's looking strong. It's looking strong. <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm loving it. Drew, I want, I want to start here. You've been in public safety your whole life. Uh, your sons have followed your example. They followed you into the profession. When we were in office, we saw an upsurge in, in recruiting of police officers around the state. What are you hearing from your friends, not just police chiefs in the state of Missouri, but I know you work with people around the country. What are you hearing about the willingness of young people to join the professions of public safety, to become police officers today? It's getting very difficult to repeat to recruit young people to become into the profession of law enforcement. Uh, you know, when we were in office, we had great support. Uh, you had great support. The president gave great support to law enforcement and all of this talk of defunding law enforcement and not supporting the police. It's a difficult job in and of its own without having all the politics involved. Yeah, and talk a little bit, if you could, Drew, because a, a lot of times, you know, for a lot of our viewers who, who are, are tremendous supporters of, of public safety, we get wonderful comments from people supporting police and firefighters all, uh, all the time. But for, for our viewers who might not know a law enforcement family, if you could give them some insight into how we always talk about this is a family profession. If you have 
a, a member of the family who is in law enforcement, it really requires an entire a commitment of the entire family. If you could just talk a little bit about how families are affected when they have a member who's serving as a police officer, as a firefighter. Well, it's, uh, you know, I can speak to it both from, from my perspective, having three sons that are now in the profession. Yeah. And, and I sort of got a feel for what it was like when I went to work and my wife worried about me. Mm -hmm. Now, when my sons go to work every day, I worry about them. Yes. Uh, I also have a son that was in the military and he was deployed to Afghanistan and I worried about him when he was there. And, you know, the shoes sort of on the other foot and it's, uh, you worry about it. You worry about that phone call in the middle of the night that he's been hurt or injured or, or been involved in a shooting or whatever may have happened. And, uh, you just, you just worry about him a lot. Yeah. And Drew, if you could, I want to turn a little bit to some of the, the current uh, events right now. Obviously, uh, everyone is preparing for the inauguration next Wednesday in Washington, D.C. Uh, you've been responsible for coordinating major public safety events, and I want to talk about some of those aspects. But if you could first give our viewers a sense for how intelligence works in domestic public safety how fusion centers work, how the FBI might share information with local police departments, the state police might work together. Talk a little bit about how you help to, to bring people together to share that information and how, in, how the intelligence should flow if there are potential threats to public safety. Well, the biggest concern with this event and any national security event is to make sure the information is getting to the frontline officers who are mm -hmm. out there. Many times this information gets siloed. Uh, you know, you get an agency that feels like it's their responsibility to disseminate that information to who they want to. You know, you, you hear the old analogy, well, it's on a need to know basis. Well, if they're there protecting the event, everybody needs to know and needs to have the same information, intelligence, briefings, everybody should, there should be no surprises to anybody. Yeah, and, and talk if you would a little bit about like the sources of that intelligence, because a lot of times when people think about intelligence, they might think about it as, as we used it overseas in the military. They think about, you know, what's happening uh, with the enemy. They think about, you know, intelligence briefings that they might have seen in, in a movie. In the world of domestic public safety, it's a little different. You might have police officers who are talking with sources on the ground. You might have federal agencies who have different insights. Talk, if you would, about the whole range of different sources of intelligence that might come in to folks who are trying to keep public safety during an event like an inauguration. Well, the fusion centers are so important, and that's sort of an intelligence gathering center. And they'll gather everything that they can get from human intelligence, which could be law enforcement who has confidential informants on the ground. It could be from undercovers that are embedded uh, with some of these organizations. And probably one of the biggest uh, intelligence gathering spots today is social media. Mm -hmm. uh, getting out there and, and surfing that social media network and looking for keywords and bringing that information into the Fusion Center, vetting it, determining what's important to the event and what's just loose chatter. Yeah. 
And Drew, you've led you know, multiple agencies through major events, whether they were emergencies like ice storms or, or big you know, public disruption on, on, on the streets. Uh, you've, you've led in small towns, you've led an entire state. Talk with our viewers a little bit from the perspective of public safety leadership, how the folks who are in charge of protecting the Capitol and protecting citizens during the inauguration, what are the top two or three things that are on their mind as they're planning uh, for an event like this? Well, I think that there's a lot of national security events that have been held. I, I watched a news story earlier and they said, I think this was the 68th national security event. My concern in watching this event unfold is the fact that this is probably the most important event that's ever had a direct threat made to the event. A lot of the events are planned, whether it's a, a World Series or whether it's a presidential visit or whether it's presidential debates. Uh, you know, there's generally not a lot of threats made at those events. There's been a lot of information, a lot of intel that's come in. And my concern is, is to make sure that, I hope they're making sure, the leadership especially, that the information's getting down to the front line, that they have good, clear, and concise rules of engagement, that they have some training that's taking place prior to the event, because many of these law enforcement agencies, military units, have never worked or trained together, and that is so crucial. Yeah, and Drew, you know, one other thing that's happened recently as people reflect back on the events of, of January 6th, um, we talked about this uh, on the show last night. One of the basic rules in the military was that you always knew that whatever the first report was that came off the battlefield, you knew that it was wrong. It didn't mean that people had sent it up intentionally wrong, but you always knew whatever that first report was, that additional facts would come in. Talk about how, and again, you've done uh, investigations at every level. Talk about how important it is to do investigations over time and how a, uh, the picture that you might first see can change quite quickly as the investigation continues. Well, I think that's clear in a number of cases that we've seen recently. And, you know, as citizens of this country, we now have an insatiable desire for instant news, instant results, and instant action. And many of these events are very complex, and mm -hmm. it's going to take weeks, days, and months to sort them out. And we shouldn't let the facts interfere with the news, should we? <laughs> right. All right. Well, certainly we're going to try to make sure that we stay uh, stay focused on on the facts here. Andrew, what uh, what advice or words would you have for all of the officers? There are tens of thousands of them, National Guard, uh, public safety, firefighters who are on uh, the front lines uh, right now. Any any words of, of advice or wisdom from you to them? Uh, I just want to be safe and uh, get plenty of rest and sleep and train and be prepared and, and make sure they all go home to their families. Awesome, awesome. Andrew, when you've been talking uh, with your sons, and again, you've had, you've had your sons follow you uh, into the profession of public safety. 
Uh, when you talk with them, and they're talking with a younger generation of men and women who've come into the profession of, of public safety, what do we need to do as a country to keep that generation engaged in, in public safety? We just need to wrap our arms around them and support them and, and let them know it, it is a calling. Uh, it's, it's not about the money. It's not about the environment. You can't worry about the politics. Just go out there and, and work, work your way forward and do a great job. Awesome. Well, again, Drew, greatly appreciate uh, you making the time uh, to join us, uh, folks. That's Drew Juden, career public safety officer, former director of the Missouri Department of Public Safety, offering some of his insights on what's happening in the minds of public safety leaders and also the men and women who are on the front lines right now thinking about the inauguration that's going to be happening uh, next week. Now stay right with us because coming back right after the break, we're joined again by John Solomon, founder and editor-in-chief of Just the News. He's got some really important information that you're going to want to hear. Stay right with us. We'll be back in a minute. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Well, welcome back to Actionable Intelligence. I'm Eric Greitens. We are joined now by Just the News founder and editor-in-chief, John Solomon. John, thank you so much for joining us. Good to be here. Justthenews.com. We just have a brand new breaking story. It's up on the website now. Please let our viewers know. The first acknowledgement by the FBI that a liberal anarchist participated in the Capitol riots last week. Remember, we've been told this yes. is all MAGA people only. Nope. Uh, today, John Sullivan of Utah, a man who's previously been charged in a riot in Utah from the summer. Remember when we yes. had bad summer riots? He was charged with participating in a violent riot where a person was shot. Today, he was charged by the FBI with participating in the Capitol riots, entering unlawfully to the Capitol, encouraging people to set fires, to take things. Um, this is a man who portrayed himself as being in the Capitol as a journalist. Uh, the FBI called his bluff today. They've charged him, I believe, with three counts. Uh, the first uh, non-Trump or uh, non-MAGA person to be charged. I'm hearing that there are others that wow. the FBI are looking at. This is going to become, as we said last night, yes. much more complicated picture of what really happened. And, this, and it uh, sounds tragedy. like he's also specifically lied to the FBI. Is that is that right? Well, I mean, he says we don't know for sure. But yeah, yes, they says he's a journalist. Yeah, uh, they say he was an anarchist, you know, or, or a participant in a violent crime. Right. Uh, you know, the public's going to decide this, but. Here's the killer part. His own video footage he took as a journalist is what's now being used to prosecute him. Wow. It captures him making these utterances of incitement. Uh, big development. This is what the uh, Trump people have been saying. We thought there were more people there than just ours. Yes. Uh, now the question is how many? What else happened? And uh, what other charges are forthcoming? I'm told from law enforcement tonight they are looking at 
three to five other people that are known liberal anarchists that they believe were involved in some way in this Capitol riot. Uh, that will change the storyline a little bit. But remember, they already rushed to impeach the president yes. before this evidence came out. Wow. I know that you and the team are going to continue to follow this story. We've also got uh, a big story that you published yesterday was about the declassification of documents moving right. forward. What do we know right now tonight about the likelihood of other documents being declassified? Important breaking news again, yes. literally. Just found yes. this out just a little bit ago. The president of the United States, President Trump, has declassified large numbers, I'm told, a foot and a half of documents. Uh, almost everything that the FBI had left uh, out of public sight, uh, the Justice Department, uh, everything from Christopher Steele's debriefings to Stefan Halper, another one of the undercover yes. informants. And we are going to learn big, dramatic storylines, things that the FBI and their Democratic defenders have tried to suppress in this Russia case. One of them is when Christopher Steele was interviewed a year after he was fired yes. as an informant, he came back and he said, the reason I was leaking to the media was to create the Russia narrative story in the public because Hillary Clinton was concerned about her email scandal. Uh, and so I was trying to change the subject, uh, 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 take the gloves off and change the subject. So the Russia narrative, the collusion narrative, it was there to help Hillary Clinton. That's what he says in his own words. This is a huge development. So again, just to remind all of our viewers, you go back to 2016, Hillary Clinton is being asked questions about her server, That's right. her private server that she had, and they're worried about potentially having foreign actors, including perhaps the Russians, who got a hold of secret information because yep. she was using her private server. And what we're hearing now is that Christopher Steele, who created the entire fake dossier upon which the whole Russia collusion hoax was built, he's saying that he did it because... Because he wanted to change the topic because the email scandal, if you remember, at the very end of the campaign, J James Comey reopened the Hillary Clinton yes. email scandal after closing it down. When that happened, he said, I leaked to the news media to put this other subject out there, this false narrative out there to help Hillary Clinton fight. And he says, uh, we, were, uh, we were taking the gloves off. Well, you know, that's not what an FBI informant is supposed to do. He's supposed to right. secretly help the FBI. He takes his knowledge of what he's feeding the FBI, gives it to the public in an effort to sway the election. And remember, he's a foreigner. He's a Brit. Yes. This is a clear evidence of a British foreigner trying to influence the 2016 election by his own admission to the FBI. By his own admission to the FBI, he's trying to influence it. And not only is he trying to influence it, he's trying to influence it directly as a result. In his own words, it sounds like he's admitting because of the trouble that Hillary Clinton was in. That's right. And that formed the basis for the entire Russia collusion hoax, which lasted for years right. here. It was nonstop coverage around, around the Russia collusion hoax. I mean, give our viewers just a reminder of how long that narrative went on. It started in July of 2016 when the FBI opened Operation Crossfire Hurricane, and it did not end until April 2019. It consumed more than two years of the Trump presidency in April 2019. That's when Robert Mueller, the special counsel, finally declared there was no collusion after all. The FBI knew from the beginning. These documents are clear. The FBI did not trust Steele's dossier. They had no other real evidence of collusion, but they allowed this to go on even after learning from Christopher Steele. His motive was to put a false wow. story into the public domain to change the topic off of Hillary Clinton's scandal. Uh, we all in the media who got this wrong, certainly not, not suggested news, but other media members, 
they're going to look at these documents and be shamed. There's another informant mentioned in these documents. Yes. Stefan Halper. Yes. He was the informant who wore the wire on people like George Papadopoulos and Carter right. Page, two targets. His tasking orders from the FBI. Now, remember what the narrative has been from the Democrats, the media, the FBI. This wasn't spying. Even James Combs, right. I wouldn't call this spying. In these documents, they talk specifically about targeting the Trump campaign, portraying yourself falsely as someone who wants to come in and maybe get hired by the campaign, work for the campaign, then use that access to spy on what was going on inside the Trump campaign. Specific tasking orders, who to contact, how to conduct yourself, how to pretend you're interested in getting hired. This wow. is what spying is. You falsely portray a persona, you get embedded, you report back to your spy handlers what it is. The idea that this wasn't spying will be blown out of the water when people see these tasking documents that are going to get made public as early as tomorrow. Wow. So this is hard evidence for the first time in detailed documents detailing exactly how, not just that they're admitting to spying, That's right. but detailing exactly how they wanted to go in and spy on the Trump campaign. Create a false story that he wanted to go get hired by the Trump campaign and use that, and they're targeting you. We should talk to this Trump person, talk to that Trump person, record this person. If that isn't spying, I don't know what is. And all those who falsely deceived us by saying no spying was going on, they should be held to account when this document is shown out. There's other very big de yes. uh, revelations in the documents. One of them is, I've always wondered, where did Christopher Steele get his first source? Yes. They call him the primary subsource. He's the guy that had all the salacious Russia stuff that turned out to be bogus. Yes. When the FBI interviewed the subsource, he denied some of the things he said or said, Christopher Steele, I was, I was just doing bar talk. Yeah. I didn't intend it to be intelligence. That subsource was connected to uh, Christopher Steele by one of the most famous impeachment witnesses against President Trump three years later, Fiona Hill, a Russian expert on the National Security Council working for Donald Trump. She is the person, according to Christopher Steele, he tells the FBI, that's who connected me, Fiona Hill connected me to the um, uh, subsource sub that made the most salacious things. The con connectivity between impeachment and Russia becomes incredibly clear when you look at these documents. This is incredible. So we now have documents that are demonstrating. We will be getting. We don't we'll, have we'll, we'll, we'll be, so we'll yeah, be getting. My we'll reporting getting. indicates that's what's in them. Yeah. That, that, that's what's in right. them. And that your reporting indicates that we're going to get documents that show that one of the witnesses against President Trump in his impeachment worked with Christopher Steele to create the fake Rush, the fake dossier. She introduces these, the man who she, then oh, becomes. I'm sorry. She yeah. introduces him the, to man. the man who becomes. And later. He goes back and tells her, according to the FBI documents, at least as I've heard from my sources over the last six months, later goes back and says, hey, you know that dossier that's out in public? Your guy really helped me on that. So she knew that the person she had introduced ultimately became the source of a lot of that. Now, remember, Fiona Hill yes. cast some doubt on the uh, Russia collusion story when she testified uh, in impeachment, uh, raised some questions about the narrative. Um, we didn't know then, and nor did I don't believe, did the Trump defense team know that she had this prior connection to Christopher Steele. We are now finding about it, tragically, at the very last days of the Trump administration. Oh, my gosh. These, this is major breaking it news. Is. And then give our viewers a sense. It sounds like there, that the, some of these documents your, your reporting indicates are going to be coming soon. Give, give us a sense for what you think the likely trajectory here in terms of timing of these, these documents coming out. We could see the stack as early as tomorrow or wow. as late as Monday, but it's going to fall on that window. Obviously, the president leaves office on Wednesday. Yes. But uh, these are significant documents. They really fill in the blanks. They really debunk some of the false storylines. 
that the FBI gave when it was trying to defend himself, deflect, hey, there's a lot of good evidence against uh, Donald Trump and the Russia collusion. There was no evidence of that against Donald Trump. One of the uh, people forget this because it happened just before the election, but one of the lead FBI agents that worked the case for three years testified to the Justice Department just in September. He finally cracked and went to the Justice Department and said what happened. He said, we never had evidence of collusion. The whole effort was to, quote, get Trump. That's his words. Right. Get Trump any way we could. What a shameful thing to think that our most powerful law enforcement agency, our most powerful intelligence agencies were involved in a get Trump partisan exercise in the absence of any evidence of collusion. And we in the American public were being fed a false story by the intelligence community, by the FBI, by the Democrats in Congress, and by the news media. These are incredible revelations. And again, this is a lot to digest for, for, for our viewers. So first, uh, we have a uh, liberal activist who's actually arrested by, by the FBI. That's correct. Right. Second, we now know for certain that there, that there was an effort, documented effort, to actually spy on the Trump campaign. And this, is, this document lays out also how that was, how that was in fact done. Without question. We're connecting one of the witnesses who testified against Trump at his impeachment to a subsource for the fake Steele dossier. Yeah. And it sounds like Christopher Steele himself in these documents is saying that the entire Russia collusion hoax, this dossier was created for the purpose of deflecting from Hillary Clinton's email trouble. That's why he went to the news media. It's remarkable why he leaked. This is incredible. Man, John. A lot more to learn. Again, I, I'll just say, you know, personally and on behalf of our viewers, we appreciate your strong Thank and you. courageous reporting. We look forward to having you back on Thanks, again. Eric. Folks, again, that is John Solomon, founder and editor-in-chief of JustTheNews.com. Go out right now to JustTheNews.com and push these stories out to your friends and family. These are big revelations, and stay tuned because more is coming. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome back to Actionable Intelligence. I'm Eric Greitens. We're joined now by Pastor Jack Hibbs of Calvary Chapel in Chino Hills, California. He's featured in the new documentary, Trump 2024, The World After Trump, which explores the relationship between President Trump and the evangelical community. You can check it out at www.trump2024.film. It's also available on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, and Google Play. Pastor Hibbs, thank you so much for joining us. It's really great to have you on. Thank you, Eric. It's awesome. Thanks. Absolutely. Now, Pastor, before we turn to the documentary, if you could, please, if you would talk a little bit about the relationship, as you see it, between President Trump and the evangelical community. Eric, I want to thank you for asking it, because so much of what we're hearing and reading about of late in the media is that there's this, just this strange dependency of the evangelical community upon President Trump as, 
as a person. Mm. And so his character has been brought into question. And how can you support someone who's got all these various things of the past? The evangelical community, Eric, supported and voted overwhelmingly for President Trump because of his policies. Trump had God-honoring policies. And the first one, Eric, was that of a very strong, perhaps the strongest in most recent years, uh, of a pro-life record. Yes. Trump, he legislatively or argued or defended pro-life concerns. And that is the number one rallying point of the evangelical community is the pro-life issue. Well, and Pastor, he was he was a pro-life president. He was strongly pro-life. He also made more progress in terms of the U.S.-Israel relationship than any president has for decades. Uh, we'd had for decades presidents promising that they were going to move the United States embassy to Jerusalem, but then they got an office and they broke the promise. President Trump kept that promise and he moved the embassy. We also saw the Abraham Accords, historic peace deals in the Arab world. Talk, if you would, about the support in the evangelical community, not only for Israel, but also for the president's policies towards and the relationship that he built between the United States and Israel, please. Yeah, what's absolutely amazing is that President Trump's uh, stand on the defense of Israel was not only forged out of friendship, but from the biblical influence that Trump heard over the years growing up. He knew that Israel was the most mentioned nation in the Bible, that God had a plan for Israel, and, and he understood that. He, he received that from uh, predominantly the upbringing uh, from his mom. That said, there were uh, nurtured relationships. One of them is Benjamin Netanyahu. This, this relationship was one that I know personally that President Trump set as an absolute standard for his presidency, that what he campaigned on regarding the honoring of Israel's desire to have the world recognize that Jerusalem is, in fact, their capital, uh, Trump did two things. He followed through on his campaign pledge. Mm -hmm. But let's remember, Eric, he also enforced what Congress had voted into in 1995 under Bill Clinton, that we were supposed to move our embassy to Jerusalem. Yes. He's the only president that had the integrity to do it. Yes. Now, Pastor, I'm going to ask you to kind of switch gears just, just a little bit, right? You've got all of our viewers uh, who are out there, and many of them, understandably, have been frustrated. They were frustrated by what happened during the election. Many of them were distraught about what happened, not only to faith communities, but to the entire country over the course of the summer. Uh, very worried about the rioting that they saw at the Capitol. If you could, please, just talk as a pastor in terms of what we need to do right now in our families, in our communities to maintain hope and to help us to revive the republic. Yeah, right now, people ought to turn off the news except your program, Eric. And what they need to do is, <laughs> what they need to do is read their Bibles. This, listen, the, the Bible is the book of hope. And families, families need to, moms and dads need to really make the discipline of encouraging, but they're going to need encouragement. Mm. Uh, the children need to know they're going to be okay. We're going to be a family. Stability right now is what everyone needs. And there is no greater stability. For example, when God says in Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the thoughts I think toward you, thoughts of a future and a hope, and to bring your life to a full completion. 
we need to return back to those biblical truths that our founding fathers quoted and depended upon in our revolution and the creation of this nation. So uh, it's very important more than ever. And, and Eric, uh, so much has been stripped away from us. Yeah. And I want to say this to your audience. Not all of that stripping has been bad. We're seeing overwhelming growth in attendance here at our church. Why? People are searching. We have paid, played a key role in, in ministering to the mental suffering and emotional distress of people yeah. who, frankly, were thinking about suicide, yes. but they came to hear the hope of God in the Word of God. Awesome. And Pastor, one of the things, you know, you just touched on on the Founding Fathers, and one of the things that you've done before, I think you do it a little bit in the in the documentary, and, and I've heard you do in other contexts, is kind of put on a historical hat and talk about the role of people of faith throughout history. If you could, just for a moment, kind of put on a historical perspective, because I often find that when we look back, we find that we have a lot to look back on with pride. Uh, we've always found that we can make it through pain and build wisdom. We found that we can make it through suffering and build strength. If you could, please, just take a quick look back at some of these moments in American history and how people of faith and, and citizens have come together to make it through some of these harder times, because I think that can also offer a lot of, a lot of hope at a moment like this. Yeah, Eric, thank you. Unfortunately, what I'm about to say is going to sound so foreign to people because we're just not taught this in public schools, but very few people stop to realize that where the concept of liberty came from, Thomas Jefferson said the concept of liberty came from Samuel Adams. And when Samuel Adams was asked, how is it that you have such a profound understanding of liberty and freedom? Samuel Adams answered and said, it's from the colonial era pastors known as the Black Robe Regiment. Samuel Adams said he understood from the Bible, from those pulpit preachers, that liberty was given to us by God. By the way, that's the, that's the reason why it's the First Amendment. And from that point on, our nation was founded upon those foundational truths. And this is not my opinion. Harvard University, most, most of your viewers do not know that Harvard, right. that's, John, that's Pastor John Harvard, a university created for the creation of seminary students and pastors. But all through the American history, what makes America unique in so many ways is that it is the only nation outside of Israel in all of human history that was founded upon Judeo-Christian worldview values. That's not my opinion. Right. France sent Alexa de Tocqueville to America yes. before they did their revolution to see why ours was so successful. And de Tocqueville said, it wasn't in our commodious harbors, and it wasn't in our strong industry or the power of our uh, workforce. He said, I didn't know what made America great until I went into the pulpits of America's churches, and that's where I found America to be great, because America was good. De Tocqueville said, once America stops being good, then America will stop being great. Yeah. And a lot of people don't know this. The church was the powerhouse of colonial America. And they're incredibly profound words. And one of the things that's so, so striking about de Tocqueville's work, which our viewers will remember is Democracy in America, is that so many of those insights into American character are just as relevant today as they were when he first, when he first wrote the book. Uh, Pastor, if, we could, if you could, talk with our viewers a little bit about this documentary that, that you're in. This documentary was put together by a group of people, and I was great, thankfully, uh, asked to just play a small role in this 
but it was regarding, frankly, the answer or answering the push around the world for a global uh, government. Uh, in most nations of the world, they're looking forward to. They believe they're going to do better if there is a global governance that is centralized. And we were heading in that direction as a nation, and there was a pause. And that pause came in the form of this man, Donald J. Trump, who put the doctrine of America first, or the mega doctrine, as my friend Charlie Kirk puts it. And um, we saw not only America prosper, we saw other nations prosper because we were prospering in these last four years. And it's a documentary that talks about what will be uh, the direction of America, for that matter, the world, whenever Trump leaves office. Because let's all be honest, no matter what you think about Donald Trump, he's a leader. Yes. And when Trump leaves the scene, look around the world. There is no other global leader that stands out right now. Donald Trump is the talk of the nations. And when he's gone, uh, sad to say, even with this incoming administration, uh, there is not a sense or the, the uh, attributes of leadership to lead the world. And it's a concerning thought. So the documentary very well goes through what will the world look like when it doesn't have a strong leader? It leaves itself open to the governance of a global type of a United Nations type of government that America will eventually then bow the knee to. Predominantly, that's what it's about. Pastor Hibbs, just 20 seconds left. Uh, any thoughts, 2021, a continued relationship between President Trump and the evangelical community? I think it's going to continue, again, not because it's Trump and his tweets and it's Trump and his hair and it's Trump and his billions, not at all. The evangelical community will rally around Donald Trump so long as Donald Trump stands for the defense of Israel and for pro-life and for religious freedoms. He stands for those and he wins the heart of the American evangelical because those are biblical values. Pastor Hibbs, 10 seconds left. Uh, where can our viewers find you? They can go to jackhibbs.com. Very simple, jackhibbs.com. Everything's there, Eric. Thanks for uh, asking that. Absolutely. Well, Pastor Hibbs, thank you so much for joining us. We look forward to having you back on the show. And folks, stay with us right here at Real America's Voice. Dr. Gina has a great show planned following right after this. We'll see you tomorrow.